Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. And of course, this episode is still brought to us by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Now is probably the best time you can take to check out Morbidly Beautiful and everything they have to offer due to the pandemic. So if you're bored and you're sitting at home and you got nothing to do, well, check out Morbidly Beautiful and read a bunch of articles about horror movies and horror pop culture in general. They have a lot of great content up there, so I suggest go checking it out, as well as the extensive podcast library. So go listen and read. Keep yourself occupied. Now today's episode, I'm going to branch off into something a little bit different, something I don't usually talk about on the podcast here, but I thought, hey, eh, why not? I haven't done anything about aliens, at least not that I can remember. That includes UFO sightings and all the sorts. There's a reason for this, and that reason is because it's very gray, no pun intended with the grays. When it comes to UFOs, there are so many variables. And yes, I talk about things that may or may not exist all the time, but this is a very real-world situation. Aliens either are among us or they aren't. There's evidence to support each side of that argument. And I don't want to get caught up in the middle of it, but there is one event that took the world by storm way back in 1997. I'm talking about the Phoenix Lights. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Now, while UFOs are kind of a controversial subject in the world of, well, what I consider the world of cryptozoology or unknown things in general, they are a very fascinating aspect of that world. And I've always had an extreme interest in things not of this world. Extraterrestrials, UFOs, other space debris out there. It's all very interesting because it's very unknown, despite all the research surrounding said topic. But the Phoenix Lights, that's an interesting one. And it is so because of the sheer amount of people who saw it and reported it from civilians to government officials. Now, I did find a website called MUFON, or the Mutual UFO Network. And of course, this is probably a little bit of a biased website in favor of UFO sightings and even conspiracies and all that kind of stuff. But it does have a very good timeline of the Phoenix Lights phenomena. And I'm going to read a lot of this website to you right now, this article in particular, about the Phoenix Lights. So let's just jump into it. The Phoenix Lights, sometimes called the Lights Over Phoenix, were a series of widely sighted unidentified flying objects observed in the skies over Arizona, Nevada, in the United States, and Sonora, Mexico, on Thursday, March 13th, 1997. Lights of varying descriptions were seen by thousands of people between 1930 and 2230 Mountain Standard Time in a space of about 300 miles, or 480 kilometers, from the Nevada line through Phoenix to the edge of Tucson. There were allegedly two distinct events involved in the incident, 
a triangular formation of lights seen to pass over the state, and a series of stationary lights seen in the Phoenix area. The United States Air Force identified the second group of lights as flares dropped by an A-10 Warthog aircraft that were on training exercises at the Barry Goldwater Range in southwest Arizona. Witnesses claim to have observed a huge carpenter square-shaped UFO containing five spherical lights or possibly light-emitting engines. Fife Symington, the governor at the time, was one of the witnesses to the incident. He later called the object otherworldly. The lights were reported to have reappeared in 2007 and 2008, but these events were quickly attributed to military flares dropped by fighter aircraft at Luke Air Force Base and flares attached to the helium balloons released by a civilian. Now, the initial reports in that fateful day in 1997, at about 1855 Pacific Standard Time, a man reported seeing a V-shaped object above Henderson, Nevada. He said it was about the size of a Boeing 747 and sounded like rushing wind. It had six lights on its leading edge. The lights reportedly traversed northwest to southeast. An unidentified former police officer from Paulden, Arizona, is claimed to have been the next person to report the sighting after leaving his house at about 2015 Mountain Standard Time. As he was driving north, he allegedly saw a cluster of reddish or orange lights in the sky, comprising four lights together and a fifth light trailing them. Each of the individual lights in the formation appeared to the witness to consist of two separate point sources of orange light. He returned home and, through binoculars, watched the lights until they disappeared south over the horizon. Prescott and Prescott Valley lights were also reportedly seen in the areas of Prescott and Prescott Valley. At approximately 2017 Mountain Standard Time, callers began reporting the object was definitely solid because it blocked out much of the starry sky as it passed over. John Kaiser was standing outside with his wife and sons in Prescott Valley when they noticed a cluster of lights to the west, northwest of their position. The lights formed a triangular pattern, but all of them appeared to be red, except for the light at the nose of the object, which was distinctly white. The object, or objects, which had been observed for approximately two to three minutes with binoculars, then passed directly overhead the observers. They were seen to bank to the right, and then they disappeared into the night sky to the southeast of Prescott Valley. The altitude could not be determined, however, it was fairly low and made no sound whatsoever. The National UFO Reporting Center received the following report from the Prescott area, and this is a quote. While doing astrophotography, I observed five white-yellow lights in a V formation moving slowly from the northwest across the sky to the northeast, then turn almost due south and continue until out of sight. The point of the V was in the direction of the movement. The first three lights were in a fairly tight V, while two of the lights were further back along the lines of the V's legs. During the northwest-northeast transit, one of the lights moved up and joined the three, and then dropped back to the trailing position. I estimated the three-light V to cover about 0.5 degrees of the sky, and the whole group of five lights together to cover about one degree of the sky. 
At the town of Dewey, 10 miles east of Prescott, Arizona, six people saw a large cluster of lights while driving northbound on Highway 69. Tim Lay and his wife Bobby, and his son Hal, and his grandson Damien Turnridge first saw the lights when they were above Prescott Valley about 65 miles away from them. At first, they appeared to them as five separate and distinct lights in an arc shape, like they were on top of a balloon. But they soon realized these lights appeared to be moving towards them. Over the next 10 or so minutes, they appeared to be coming closer and the distance between the lights increased and they took the shape of an upside down V. Eventually, when the lights appeared to be a couple of miles away, the witnesses could make out a shape that looked like a 60 degree carpenter square with the five lights set into it, with one at the front and two on each side. Soon the object with the embedded lights appeared to be coming right down the street where they lived, about 100 to 150 feet above them. Traveling so slowly, it appeared to hover, and it was indeed silent, much like the other reports. The object then seemed to pass over their heads and went through a V opening in the peaks of the mountain range towards Squaw Peak Mountain and toward the direction of Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport. Witnesses in Glendale, a suburb northwest of Phoenix, saw the object pass overhead at an altitude high enough to become obscured by the thin clouds. This was at approximately 2030 or 2045 Mountain Standard Time. When the triangular formation entered the Phoenix area, Bill Grenier, a cement driver hauling a load down a mountain, north of Phoenix described the second group of lights, and he said, through a quote, I'll never be the same. Before this, if anybody had told me they saw a UFO, I would have said, yeah, and I believe in the Tooth Fairy. Now I've got a whole new view, and I may be just a dumb truck driver, but I've seen something that don't belong here. Grenier stated that the lights hovered over the area for more than two hours. A report came from a young man in the Kingman area who stopped his car at a public phone to report the incident. The quote here reads, The young man en route to Los Angeles called from a phone booth to report having seen a large and bizarre cluster of stars moving slowly in the northern sky. As I mentioned earlier, the reappearance did happen in 2007. However, it was ultimately debunked as flares dropped by an F-16 aircraft at the Luke Air Force Base. Again in 2008, a similar incident occurred when lights were again reported over North Phoenix by local residents. According to witnesses, the lights formed a vertical line, then spread apart and made a diamond shape. The lights also formed a U-shape at one point. Tony Toporek videotaped the lights. He was talking to neighbors at 8pm when the lights appeared. He went and grabbed his camera to get the lights on video. A Valley resident reported that shortly after the lights reappeared, three jets were seen headed west in the direction of the lights. An official from Luke Air Force Base denied any United States Air Force activity in the area. On April 22, 2008, a resident of Phoenix told a newspaper that the lights were nothing more than his neighbors releasing helium balloons with flares attached. The following day, a Phoenix resident who declined to be identified in the news reported that he had attached flares to helium balloons and released them from his backyard. However, no names or pictures of the reported hoaxer were ever released, nor was anyone ever cited, ticketed, or charged from the supposed releasing of flares over a residential area that at the time was enduring a record drought. 
which of course is dangerous for wildfire reasons. Now one thing that does make the Phoenix Lights a little more interesting and a little more plausible, besides the sheer amount of people who've seen it, was that there was a ton of documentation, both photographic and video. Now the photographic documentation has imagery of the Phoenix Lights fall into two categories. Images of the triangular formation seen prior to 2200 Mountain Standard Time in Prescott and Dewey, and images of the 2200 MST Phoenix event. Almost all known images are of the second event. All known images were produced using a variety of commercially available camcorders and cameras. During the first event, there are few known images of the Prescott Dewey lights. Television station KSAZ reported that an individual named Richard Curtis recorded a detailed video that purportedly showed the outline of a spacecraft, but that the video had been lost. The only other known video is of poor quality and shows a group of lights with no visible craft. Now the second event over Phoenix has, as I mentioned, a lot of the evidence supporting the case for a UFO sighting. And during the event, numerous still photographs and videotapes were made, distinctly showing a series of lights appearing at a regular interval, remaining illuminated for several moments and then going out. These images have been repeatedly aired by documentary television channels such as Discovery and History as part of their UFO documentary programming. These images and videos are widely available. All you have to do is YouTube or even Google the Phoenix Lights to see what I'm talking about here. The most frequently seen sequence shows what appears to be an arc of lights appearing one by one and then going out one by one. UFO advocates claim that these images show that the lights were some form of running light or other aircraft illumination along the leading edge of a large craft, estimated to be as large as 1.6 kilometers in diameter or about a mile, hovering over the city of Phoenix. Other similar sequences reportedly taken over a half-hour period showing differing numbers of lights in a V or arrowhead array. Thousands of witnesses throughout Arizona also reported a silent, mile-wide V or boomerang-shaped craft with varying numbers of huge orbs. A significant number of witnesses reported that the craft was silently gliding directly overhead at a low altitude. The first-hand witnesses consistently report that the lights appeared as canisters of swimming light, while the underbelly of the craft was undulating, like looking through water. However, skeptics claim that the video is evidence that mountains, not visible at night, partially obscured views from certain angles, thereby bolstering the claim that the lights were more distant than UFO advocates claim. Speaking of UFO advocates, Jim Deletoso claimed to have performed a quote-unquote special analysis of photographs and video imagery that proved the lights could not have been made by a man-made source. Delatoso claimed to have used software called Image Pro Plus, exact version unknown, to determine the amount of red, green, and blue in the various photographic and video images and construct histograms of the data, which were then compared to several photographs known to be flares. Several sources have pointed out, however, that it is impossible to determine the spectral signature of a light source based solely on a photograph or video image, and as film and electronics inherently alter the spectral signature of a light source by shifting hue in the visible spectrum, and experts in spectroscopy have dismissed his claims as being scientifically invalid. 
And that makes a great deal of sense. As a photographer, I can very much validate those claims that the light does change once it goes through the lens, hits the sensor, and then records on whatever memory stick or film that you're using. It's not an exact replica. Therefore, you cannot get a signature, a light signature of any kind. It just doesn't make sense. Normally, photographic equipment also eliminates light outside the visible spectrum, i.e. infrared and ultraviolet. That would be necessary for a complete spectral analysis. Again, makes complete sense. The maker of ImagePro Plus Media Cybernetic has stated that this software is incapable of performing spectroscopic analysis. Again, makes sense. It's a photo editing app or software, whatever you want to call it. It's not a scientific analysis software or piece of equipment or something that can read light spectrometry. It's just not capable of it. However, a company called Cognitech, which is an independent video laboratory, did take a stab at it. They superimposed video imagery taken of the Phoenix lights onto video imagery and shot it during the daytime from the same locations. In the composite image, the lights are seen to extinguish at the moment they reach the Estrella Mountain Range, which is visible in the daytime, but invisible in the footage shot at night. A broadcast by local Fox Broadcasting Company affiliate KSAZ-TV claimed to have performed a similar test that showed the lights were in front of the mountain range and suggested that the Cognitech data might have been altered. Dr. Paul Scohan, visiting professor of astronomy at Arizona State University, performed a third analysis using daytime imagery overlaid with the video shot of the lights, and his findings were consistent with Cognitech. The Phoenix News Times subsequently reported the television station had simply overlaid two video tracks on a video editing machine without using a computer to match the zoom and scale of the two images. Now the wind data at that time was also quite relevant, and it was independently measured by several weather stations in the Phoenix area and archived by the National Climate Data Center is consistent with reports about the movement of the lights. During these events, wind direction was changing from roughly west, blowing towards the east, to north, blowing towards the south. This supports the hypothesis that the flying objects were wind-driven and could simply have been balloons or flares. There's some controversy as to how to best classify the reports on the night in question. Some are of the opinion that the differing natures of the eyewitness reports indicates that several unidentified objects were in the area, each of which was its own separate quote-unquote event. This is largely dismissed by skeptics as an over-extrapolation from the kind of deviation common in necessarily subjective eyewitness accounts. The media and most skeptical investigators have largely preferred to split the sightings into two distinct classes, a first and second event, for which two separate explanations are offered. The first event, the V, which appeared over northern Arizona and gradually traveled south over nearly the entire length of the state, eventually passing south of Tucson, was the apparently wedge-shaped object reported by then-Governor Symington and many others. This event started at about 2015 Mount Standard Time over the Prescott area and was seen south of Tucson by about 2045 MST, or Mount Standard Time. Proponents of Two separate events propose that the first event still has no provable explanation, but that some evidence exists 
that the lights were in fact airplanes. According to an article by reporter Janet Gonzalez that appeared in the Phoenix New Times videotape of the V-shape shows the lights moving as separate entities and not as a single object, a phenomenon known as illusory contours that can cause the human eye to see unconnected lines or dots as forming a single shape. Mitch Stanley, an amateur astronomer, observed high-altitude lights flying in formation using a Dobsonian telescope giving 43 times magnification. After observing the lights, he told his mother, who was present at the time, that the lights were aircraft. According to Stanley, the lights were quite clearly individual airplanes. A companion who was with him recalled asking Stanley at the time what the lights were, and he said, Planes. When Stanley first gave an account of his observation at the Discovery Channel Town Hall meeting, with all the witnesses there, he was shouted down in his assertion that what he saw was what other witnesses saw. Some have claimed that Stanley was seeing the Maryland National Guard flying jets in formation during a routine training mission at the Barry Goldwater bombing range south of Phoenix. It is possible that the Phoenix Lights V is actually a group of planes based on the explanation of a similar sighting in South Carolina. Now the second event was the set of nine lights appearing to hover over the city of Phoenix at around 10 p.m. The second event has been more thoroughly covered by the media due in part to the numerous video images taken of the lights. This was also observed by numerous people who have thought they were seeing the same lights as those reported earlier. The U.S. Air Force explained the second event as a slow-falling, long-burning LUU-2B-B illumination flares dropped by a flight of four A-10 Warthog aircraft on a training exercise at the Barry Goldwater Range at Luke Air Force Base. According to this explanation, the flares would have been visible in Phoenix and appeared to hover due to rising heat from the burning flares creating a balloon-type effect on their parachutes which slowed their descent. The lights then appeared to wink out as if they fell behind the Sierra Estrella, which is a mountain range to the southwest of Phoenix. A Maryland Air National Guard pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Ed Jones, responding to a March 2007 media query, confirmed that he had flown one of the aircraft in the formation that dropped the flares on the night in question. The squadron to which he belonged was in fact at Davis Mountain Air Force Base, Arizona on a training exercise at the time and flew training sorties into the Barry Goldwater Range on the night in question. According to the Maryland National Guard, of course, a history of the Maryland Air National Guard published in 2000 asserted that the squadron, the 104th Fighter Squadron, was responsible for the incident. Their first reports that members of the Maryland Air National Guard were responsible for the incident were published in the Arizona Republic newspaper in July 1997. Military flares such as these can be seen from hundreds of miles given ideal environmental conditions. Later comparisons with known military flare drops were reported on local television stations, showing similarities between the known military flare drops and the Phoenix lights. An analysis of the luminosity of the LUU-2B-B illumination flares, the type which would have been used by A-10 aircraft at the time, determined that the luminosity of such flares at a range of approximately 50 to 70 miles would fall well within the range of the lights viewed from Phoenix. 
Dr. Bruce McAbee did an extensive triangulation of the four videotapes, determining that the objects were near or over the Goldwater Proving Grounds. Page 5 of Dr. McAbee's analyst refers to Bill Hamilton and Tom King's sighting position at Steve Blunder's house. Blunder has worked with Dr. McAbee to fully include his sighting position in the triangulation report. McAbee has also refined three other sighting positions and lines of sight in 2012. Surprisingly, there was minimal news coverage at the time of the incident. In Phoenix, a small number of local news outlets noted the event, but it received little attention beyond that. But on June 18, 1997, USA Today ran a front-page story that brought national attention to the case. This was followed by news coverage on the ABC and NBC television networks. The case quickly caught the popular imagination and has since become a staple of UFO-related documentary television, including specials produced by the History Channel and Discovery Channel. The governor at the time, the one who spotted it, did give a response. And it was shortly after the lights that Arizona Governor Fife Symington III held a press conference stating that they found who was responsible. He proceeded to make light of the situation by bringing his aide on stage dressed in an alien costume. But in March 2007, Symington said that he had witnessed one of the crafts of unknown origin during the 1997 event, although he did not go public with the information. In an interview with the Daily Courier in Prescott, Arizona, Symington said, quote, I am a pilot, and I know just about every machine that flies. It was bigger than anything that I have ever seen. It does remain a great mystery. Other people saw it. Responsible people. I don't know why people would ridicule it. Symington had earlier said, and I quote again, It was enormous and inexplicable. Who knows where it came from? A lot of people saw it, and I saw it too. It was dramatic. And it couldn't have been flares because it was too symmetrical. It had a geometric outline, a constant shape, which generally doesn't happen in nature or by accident. Symington also noted that he requested information from the commander of the Luke Air Force Base, the general of the National Guard, and the head of the Arizona Department of Public Safety. But none of the officials he contacted had an answer for what had happened and were also perplexed. Later, he responded to an Air Force explanation that the lights were flares, and he was quoted saying, As a pilot and former Air Force officer, I can definitively say that this craft did not resemble any man-made object I have ever seen, and it was certainly not high-altitude flares, because flares don't fly in formation. In an episode of the television show UFO Hunters called The Arizona Lights, Symington said that he contacted military officials asking what the lights were. The response was a typical no comment. He pointed out that he was the governor of Arizona at the time, not just some ordinary civilian. In 1997, Phoenix City Councilwoman Frances Barwood launched an investigation into the event, and she said that of the over 700 witnesses she interviewed, the government was never interviewed even once. All in all, the Phoenix Lights were a spectacular event, be it an Air Force training exercise or an actual ET event. It's very difficult to say. If it was an Air Force training event, then why was it happening so late at night? Why would you drop flares above a city that can clearly see them without any warning in advance? It doesn't make sense to me, or it doesn't make sense in general, I would suppose. 
I mean, I get you have to do training exercises at night. Not all war combat takes place in the nice shiny hours of the midday sun. But at the same time, it seems a little extreme to be doing something that grand in scale so late into the evening. And whatever your beliefs are on UFOs or extraterrestrial sightings in general, it's hard to deny the Phoenix Lights event as a phenomenal instance. An event that captured the imaginations of people all over the world, not just in the United States or North America. What the lights were, we may never know for certain. People have claimed to have seen UFOs all over the world. And the United States just happens to be home to a couple of the very big ones. Phoenix Lights, Area 51, Crash of 47, the list goes on and on. Is it all just media attention? Is it all just hoopla over nothing? Or is there something to all these cases and sightings? Now personally, I, uh, I've had at least one, not encounter with an alien or anything like that, but I swear on my life that I did one day see a UFO, and it was just that, an unidentified flying object. I don't know what it was, but it was very much out of place. It was probably close to 10 years ago now, maybe more, and I was driving home from a girlfriend's house, and I looked up at about 10 o'clock, maybe 11 o'clock at night, pitch black, over the city, not a lot of stars, when this triangular-shaped thing just kind of was hovering very far in the distance, not above me. I would say probably hundreds of kilometers away, but it was a very clear night. No clouds, just no stars either because of pollution and light pollution and all that. Which is why this stood out so crazily to me, that it was just there, off in the distance. I remember, I believe it was one, two, three, four lights on it. One on each triangular tip and then one kind of on the back end line, almost like maybe a jet propulsion. Couldn't tell you what it was. It looked too big, even at a distance, to be a commercial aircraft, and it wasn't really moving particularly quickly either. Nobody knows what it was. I didn't hear any reports about anything in the area around that time either, and nobody I know saw it. So I was all alone, and I kind of know how some of these people feel now. But I didn't really look much into it after that either, and I didn't really feel like being called crazy, so I just kind of dropped it, but it's always been in the back of my mind. And because of that, I do believe that there are things in our skies that nobody will ever understand fully. But that's just the wonderful nature of the world, isn't it? There's so many mysteries out there yet to be explained. My name is Casey, and this has been another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Five-star reviews will be read out on the show, so be sure to get yours in so you can get a shout-out at the intro of the next episode. Also, if you do want to follow me on social media, you can absolutely do so. It's not super active, but it is there, and you'll get notifications every time I upload an episode, or whenever I find something interesting I want to share. You can find me on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, as in production, on Facebook at HorrorShots, or on Instagram at HorrorShotsPhotography. If you do want to support the show, you can absolutely do so in a financial sense. You do not have to, but you can if you want to check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash horrorshots. I've uploaded a few episodes of the History of Demons series, so be sure to check that out. They're not super long, but they're worth it, I would say. Fun little tidbits of information about our demonic friends below. 
And lastly, if you do want to support the show with some merchandise, feel free to visit my Redbubble store where you can pick up the Ominous Origins logo, the Horror Shots logo, or some original work that I threw together in Photoshop years and years ago. And they're all available on a variety of different objects, from shirts to pants to thermoses and clocks and bed sheets, whatever you want, they have it on there. So just go check it out, and the link for that will be in the description below. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next week.